All right, Romans chapter 9 is where we're picking up. This is part of our ongoing study from chapter 1 of Romans all the way to the end. I believe chapter 16 is the end of the book of Romans. The study is called The Amazing Grace of God. And that's what Romans is about. It's about God's grace. What is God's grace? What is grace? Grace is that thing that you get that you didn't work for, earn, or deserve. By its very definition, it's something that you get as a gift. So we're talking about God's grace in the book of Romans. And so what we're talking about is the things that God gives us that we didn't earn or deserve. The undeserved goodness of God to us. And that's the overall theme. And we've encapsulated the book of Romans in four different sections. The first section was the courthouse where we saw God's wrath against sin. That God loves people. And because God loves people, he hates sin the way we hurt each other. And so we dealt with that. And in the courthouse, everybody we find out has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The religious person, the person who understands what's right and wrong, even though we've understood right and wrong, we still haven't always done right. And we confess in our heart of hearts that we have not always loved like we should have. And so all that is kind of, that's an encapsulation of that first place in the courthouse. We see God pronounces us guilty, but then his son steps up and provides the payment for the penalty that we deserve. And so we are justified, means we're declared innocent, means God revokes his punishment. So we are no longer punished, but instead we're found to be innocent. We're made righteous. All that happens in the courthouse. And then we stepped into the power plant where we talked about the power of the spirit-filled life that now my life is not about following a set of religious rules, but it's about being led by the Spirit. So 6, 7, and 8 were the power plant. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, three chapters, Paul takes us back to what we encapsulate as a building, the synagogue of Israel. We move from the summit of God's grace in chapter 8, where Paul just outlined all of the goodness and God's love for us, and so secure in his love. And that's the beautiful thing about the fact that Our relationship with God is not based on us earning God's love. It's not based on us having to do all the right things so God loves us. Maybe you grew up in a place of conditional love, where what you knew was when you did right, then you were accepted or you were loved. But when you didn't do right, then not just about being disciplined, that's a good thing, but that love was withheld from you and goodness was withheld from you. And so Paul climbs the summit of this mountain of God's grace and the security. Maybe some of you would admit, be willing to confess that if you dig down deep, you'd say, you know, I'm a pretty insecure person. I've dealt with a lot of issues surrounding insecurity. Maybe you don't identify it as that, but if you really thought about it, you could probably trace it back to, I want to be loved, but I'm always uncertain. Am I worthy of love? And when you come to the Bible and you find out that the only one who really matters Loves you unconditionally, no matter what you do. You mean God still loves me even when I sin? You bet he does. And that means that you don't have to run away from God when you struggle with sin. You can run to him and not fear his rejection of you. He loves you unconditionally, and there's nothing you can do, nothing you can experience, no circumstance that you can go through that can separate you from the love of God as it is brought to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he summits that mountain and we just go, oh, that's so awesome. 
But then we pick up chapter 9, we enter the synagogue, we start to talk about the nation of Israel, and I want you to write these three things down. These are three misunderstandings we're going to talk about today in chapter 9. Number one is the misunderstanding of Paul's heart. Number two is the misunderstanding of God's promises. And number three is the misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. So a couple of quick definitions before we jump into the chapter. Number one, when I say the word sovereignty, what I want you to think is absolute power. Sovereignty means absolute power. And so we're afraid of sovereignty because if someone has absolute power and they're also evil, that's bad news, isn't it? So we're hesitant to give anybody absolute power because anybody on the face of the earth can't handle absolute power because we still struggle with sin. Sin and absolute power equal big trouble. But God is love. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. And he is sovereign, means God can handle absolute power. That's called sovereignty. The second word I want to define for you before we get into it is the word mercy. If grace is getting what you don't deserve, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So just by the nature of its definition, mercy is something you don't get, even though you deserved to get it. Usually it's equated with punishment or something like that. You deserve to be punished, but you didn't get it. And we'll elaborate that as we go through. But just to know that, again, it's undeserved. Both grace and mercy have this in common. They're both undeserved. Okay, chapter 9 begins with the first misunderstanding of Paul's heart. Having summited the mountain and having stood up there and thinking about the love of God and thinking about how secure I am in God's love for me, Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. This is verse 1. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So this little introductory section he reveals here that maybe he's been misunderstood. Because anytime someone has to go to great lengths to say, no, no, I'm really telling the truth in this, it's because probably someone's accusing them of something, that they got to say, no, no, that's not how it is. So Paul has been accused of a couple of things. If you were with us through the book of Acts, you saw how much trouble Paul got into when he would go into the synagogues. He would preach Jesus. And he got accused of turning away from his own nation He got accused of turning away from the law of Moses, of turning away from the traditions that he'd grown up in as a Jewish person. And so he says, as he's on the summit, he can't help but think about, as he's thinking about the security and the love of God, he can't help but think about the people that aren't there with him. And so he says, the reaction to that, on one hand, I've got this great joy. I know that God loves me. I know that that he's for me. And if he's for me, no one can be against me. And I know there's nothing that can separate me. But I also know, and it brings great sorrow, that there's some people I really wish knew it, but they don't. 
There's some people who you really wish were here with you in church today, but they're not. And there's a place in our heart for this grief and sorrow. Who is it for you? Who is your heart continually grieved over because you know, you know that you know that they need what God has, but they've rejected it or they've ignored it. Instead of saying, well, as long as I'm okay, you know, sometimes we fall into that category. As long as I'm okay, that's all I care about. That's not the Christian way. That's not Christ's way. Our way is, hey, I'm okay. And because I have found such a great thing in Christ, I want other people to have it too. And so Paul says the response there, as he summits, it's joyful, but it's also sorrowful because of his countrymen, the Israelites, they had rejected their Messiah. They had rejected Jesus. And Paul's heartbroken for them. He knows the trouble that's coming their way because of that. He even says in verse three, look at how serious he is about it. He says, I wish I myself were a curse from Christ. Do you catch what he said there? He said, I would gladly take my place in hell if it meant that the people I love, the country I love, the countrymen, my fellow Jews would be saved. I don't know if I'm there with you, Paul. I like my place in heaven. But you know how he feels, right? You know that feeling. Maybe it's a prodigal child. Maybe it's a prodigal parent or a neighbor or a relative. What parent in here wouldn't give up the most important thing to see that your kids are saved? And so you understand this is the heart of God. God gave his only son. So this is what Paul expresses. And he lays out as he's talking about the Jews, the next three chapters we'll be talking about the Jews because they're God's chosen people. And the question will come, well, is God done with the Jews? I mean, here we are in the church and some people have taught over the years, and it's incorrect, and you'll learn that in the next three chapters. Some people have taught that God's plan for the Jews is over. Now God's turned from the Jews and now he started the church and now everything he had promised to the Jews is actually applied to the church and he's done with Israel. Everything's about the church now. And he's gonna tell us, that's not the case. God's chosen people have been the Jews. They're always going to be the Jews. And we'll see God's plan for Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, unfold amazingly in the next three chapters. At the end of chapter 11, you're just going to go, that's amazing. Isn't that how it is when we see God's plan? I mean, sometimes we don't get to see the whole thing played out. But Paul's going to play it forward and show us how all these things work together. And you just go, God, you are amazing. How many of you have lived long enough to experience God just moving things and working things and you thought it was going to be like this and it ended up like that and you just went, whoa, I never could have planned that if I tried. That's amazing. God, you are so awesome how you did that. Well, that's chapters 9 through 11. So it starts out with a misunderstanding of Paul's heart, far from being a traitor, far from rejecting his people, far from rejecting the law of Moses and all the traditions he'd been brought up in, his heart is instead for them. He wants to see them know Jesus and have the security that he has in Christ. In the law, in my works, there's no security because I am inconsistent. And if it's up to me, I am in big trouble. So in the next part is he has to explain to us God's promise. But one more thing before we go on there, look at the last part of verse 5 of whom are the fathers and from whom, from Israel, from the Jews, according to the flesh, according to lineage, Christ came, who is overall, look at this, the eternally blessed God. If you've ever struggled for a teaching or a place in the Bible that says that Jesus is God, this is the clearest one 
you will ever find. Paul clearly says Jesus is God. All right. So now the promises of God. Verse six says, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. So the question Paul naturally says is, wait a second. If your heart is for the Jews and the Jews have all those advantages, I mean, they have the priesthood, God gave them the law. I mean, there was no people on earth blessed so much as the Jews. And let me remind you, they weren't blessed because of what they did or who they were, or that they were some great nation. They were blessed. Why? Because God chose them. God chose to set them apart, to give them his law, to give them the covenants, to give them the priesthood, to give them the Messiah, and through them to bless everybody else. That's why they're blessed. Not because they did anything great, but because of God's choice. Now you have to remember that. We're going to talk about something called election. Not they went down and voted, but election means God's choice. So that's going to come up a little bit through as well. So the question in verse 6 is, wait a second, if they have all these advantages and they're God's chosen people, how in the world did they miss Jesus when he came? How did they miss their Savior? And then the question would come, maybe it's because God can't keep his promises. Because the Jews have been through some hard stuff. And when Paul writes this, they're still under Roman domination. And so the question easily comes, maybe the problem is, is that God's not faithful. Maybe God can't keep his promises. And that means something to you and I, because remember, we just had all the promises of if God is for us, who can be against us? He'll never leave us and forsake us. Well, if the Jews are his people, then I'm not so sure I feel confident in this. Because the Jews have rejected their Messiah. And they've come under a lot of persecution. He says, no, it's not that the word of God has not been effective. God's word is always effective. God's word always does what it sets out to do. The problem isn't the word of God. The problem is misunderstanding promises. You see, sometimes we read a promise in the Bible and it's easy to misunderstand who that promise is for and what that promise was made for. And sometimes we can take to ourselves promises from the Bible that weren't meant for us and we misinterpret and we misunderstand. And so that's what happens with the Jews. He said, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. Instead, the problem is you misunderstood the promise. You see, he says next, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Stop right there. He says, okay, here, let's get this straight. The Jew would trace his or her lineage back to Abraham. There was no such thing as a Jew until God revealed himself to a guy named Abraham. And again, why did God choose Abraham? Because Abraham was so great, Abraham worshipped idols. He was a pagan. He worshipped idols in Iraq. And God chose him and told him, I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to make you the father of multitudes. I'm going to give you a land. And anybody that blesses you will be blessed. Anybody that curses you will be cursed. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. God made a deal with Abraham. But did he choose Abraham because Abraham was so special? He could have chosen anybody but he just chose Abraham. And so every Jew would trace their lineage back to Abraham. And they thought, because we're Abraham's descendants, we got a special place in the world. We don't need to live a certain way. We got our traditions. We got our thing. And as long as we're connected to Abraham, it's like saying, well, I got baptized as a baby. Therefore, doesn't matter how I live. Doesn't matter what I do. I got baptized and I'm part of the church. Nothing else matters. Well, Paul says, actually, 
they're not all Israel who are Israel. And he does a little play on words. And see, unless you know what the meaning of the word Israel is in Hebrew, you won't get the meaning of the play on words because the word in Israel, the name, remember Israel was a guy named Jacob first. God likes to change people's names. Actually, Abraham was Abram, and then God changed his name to Abraham. Well, Abraham's son, Jacob, actually gets his name changed to Israel. There's actually like a grandson of Abraham. And Jacob means, does anybody know? Jacob means dirty, rotten scoundrel or heel catcher or someone that likes to trip up other people. Does that sound like a guy you want to work with? He's the one that's always kind of looking for a fast way in, looking to cut you out so he can make his way. That's what Jacob means. So he wrestles with God and God gives him a new name. And his new name is Israel. And Israel means governed by God. Here's a man who's going to be governed by God. And then Jacob has the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons. So what he says here is they're not all governed by God who are governed by God. See, not all who have the name governed by God are actually really governed by God. We could say it, not all who take the name Christian, which means little Christ, not all who take the name Christian are actually Christian. Does that make sense? We could apply that to us as well. Just because you have the name and the heritage doesn't mean you're actually living the life. And so that's where the problem comes. The problem comes just because you're descendant of Abraham doesn't mean you have the faith of Abraham. And so he says, it's not just through Abraham, because Abraham had the two sons we're going to speak of. Ishmael was the first son, who was the son from his maidservant, well, his wife's maidservant. And then the second son was Isaac. So the first son in that culture would be the one that had the blessing. The first one would be the one that had the majority of the inheritance. But God chose to use the second son, Isaac. Ishmael, when God said, Abraham, you're going to have a son, Abraham said, all right, we'll get to it. And since his wife, Sarah, couldn't have kids, they got this woman, Hagar, who was a servant, and Abraham had a child with her. And his name was Ishmael, and he represents for us the works of the flesh, meaning our own attempt to fulfill the plan of God. And what you're going to learn here as we talk about God's sovereignty, pay close attention, as we talk about God's sovereignty and how God chooses some and and how this all works out, God is sovereign means he has absolute power, right? God has absolute power to decide how people are going to be saved. And God has chosen that he will not work through people's hard work to be saved, but he will work through his grace, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish. The way that he's going to, salvation is by God's grace and believing in what he tells you, believing in the promises he's given you. All the way through. So he takes them back. Now listen, he says, let me take you back to Abraham. And then Abraham had a son named Isaac. And that's the one he says, but in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So the Ishmaelites are not considered part of the promise. And they would have agreed with that. They would have said, yes, we agree. The mercy of God and the grace of God was to us who are descended from Abraham and then from Isaac. It was Isaac that carried on the line of God's promise. God said to Abraham, okay, you blew it with the Ishmael thing. You're going to have another child. And this is going to be from you and Sarah. And I know you're 100 years old, but get to it because you're going to have a baby. And they had to go, really? And that took faith, right? To believe at 100 years old, we can have a baby. It takes faith to believe at 100 years old, we're still capable of doing the things that make babies. Read between the lines. That's what he's saying. 
and Isaac your seed shall be called because Isaac was the promise. That is, he explains, verse 8, that is those who are of the children of the flesh, meaning of man's effort. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed, as, as uh, generations. For this is the word of promise. So he's emphasizing my plan proceeds throughout history, not through the hard works of people, but through the promises that I make and believing in those promises. So that was expressed through Isaac. And he said at this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So he quotes that in the book of Genesis. Now he says, okay, let's move on from Abraham to Isaac. Well, Isaac got married to a woman named Rebecca. That's what he says in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, so the two of them got together, they had children. Verse 11 says, for the children, there were twins, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purposes of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And you can gasp at that, but hold your horses. We'll come back to that in a minute. So what Paul said is that, okay, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac got married to Rebekah, and they had twins. And you can read it in the book of Genesis. Before the twins were born, remember Jacob and Esau, they were duking it out in the womb, kicking here, kicking there. She's going, man, there's a battle going on in my belly. These boys are duking it out before they're even born. And before they were born, God said the older one, would serve the younger one. Now that's backwards. The older child should be served by the younger child. The older one is the child of priority. So God says, no, I'm going to choose to do it backwards. Well, why God? Because it's my choice. And so God switches it and he does it for a reason. It's a very important reason. Did you see that in parentheses? He says, the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. So why did God do it that way? With Abraham, we could have said, okay, you know, he did the works of the flesh thing. He had Ishmael, and then God set it straight, and Isaac was born to him and his wife, and we could understand that. But when it comes to Jacob and Esau, one father, one mother, and they were twins. They were fraternal twins, but in the womb, how do you know who's who? And God calls it ahead of time, and he does this for a reason does this to show that his plans and his purposes and his callings aren't based on your behavior. They're not based on you being callable or being lovable or being worthy. God just chooses. I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, it's a good thing God chose me before I was born because if he waited till after I was born, he'd have never chose me. See, before we're born, we can't take any credit. You know, you can't say, well, God chose me. I'm a Christian. I'm saved because here's what I do. Because I read my Bible. Because I go to the right kind of church. Because I wear the right kind of clothes. I says, no, no, no. My calling goes way back before you were even born. That's what he says. So no one can take credit because it's purposely and only in terms of God's choice or election. Now, again, the important thing here is anytime we talk about God's election, what we are highlighting and spotlighting is the grace of God. The doctrine of election that God chooses highlights God's grace as opposed to and over against man's works. 
You see that how that's consistent with the entirety of the book of Romans? You're following how Paul is emphasizing it's not about you. It's about God. And now he shows that in the lives of Jacob and Esau. And then he says that little line, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And we go, whoa, wait a second, God. I mean, you loved Jacob, but you hated Esau. Now don't have a fit over this. Jacob as a nation, the nation of Israel, God said, I'm going to choose to work through Jacob and through him establish a nation to bless the world. And I chose not to work through Esau in that same way. Does that mean that Esau went on to be the father of a nation called the Edomites? How many of you remember Herod the Great? Remember in the New Testament, the one that tried to kill all the babies to eradicate Jesus? That was Herod the Great. Can I tell you that he was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau? And so there has been tension between Esau's family and Jacob's family from the time they were born all the way throughout history. But it's not that God hates like we hate individually speaking, personally speaking, it's that God just chose one over the other. And that's how that works out. Don't think of it in terms of how we think of it. And the real miracle here, if I could just draw your attention to one more thing, is not the fact that he hated Esau. The real miracle is that he loved Jacob. You see, it wasn't like Jacob was good and Esau was bad. Otherwise, we could go, well, sure, God worked through Jacob because Jacob was so good. They were both bad. What an election, huh? To have two bad things to choose from in an election. Why is that funny? But that's important to think about because we think about, well, that some people are good and some people are bad and God chooses good people. Listen, everybody is a sinner. When God wants to choose in terms of people to be saved, he doesn't have much to choose from. He's got one great big pool of sinners. And out of that, he chooses some to be saved. And he chooses some to work through. Now, that's going to present some more problems, right? Let's move on. What do we say then, verse 14? Is there unrighteousness with God? I mean, is God fair to do that? Is it right for God to just choose to work through Jacob and not Esau? I mean, who does he think he is? And Paul says, God is not wrong to do that. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy, notice that, on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So that's huge. You see, we think about the book of Romans, we think about Romans 9. I doubt many of you have ever heard a sermon on Romans 9, because this is largely avoided in church, because it's challenging to understand, because many have implied that God chooses some to be saved, and then in the same way, and by default, chooses some to be unsaved. That God says, okay, these are the ones that I'm going to save, and these are the ones I'm going to send to hell. But I want you to notice something. You see, if you don't pay attention, you'll miss it. Is God wrong to choose Jacob? He could be wrong to choose either one, because they were both rotten guys. But instead, what Paul answers that, is God unrighteous? He says, no way. Instead, Paul quotes Exodus chapter 33, where it's written, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see, the real point about God's grace and his salvation is that God chooses to have mercy on people. See, we like it when God judges people. And God says, what if I choose to pluck out of all those destined for hell 
What if I choose to pluck out some and save them? Is that okay? Well, it's okay as long as it's me. You see, it was the Israelites. They were cool with this verse. They liked this verse because this verse quotes from Exodus. Remember when Moses was up on the mountain and he was receiving the commandments and while he was there for 40 days, the Israelites lost their mind. Aaron led them into idolatry. He's supposed to take care of them. Take care of the sheep while I'm gone, Aaron. Gotcha. And then all of a sudden, they're worshiping a golden calf. And Moses comes down the mountain, and there they are. And he says, Aaron, what happened? And Aaron says, I, I don't know, Moses. I mean, I just took all the jewelry, and we put it in the fire, and bloop out, popped the golden calf. Like, are you kidding me? So 3,000 were destroyed then, and God had the right to destroy all of them. The whole nation could have been fired up right there at that time, burned up, destroyed, judged. But God didn't do that. He chose to have mercy on some. You see, let's say all of us got in our cars. How many of us are here? A couple hundred people in here. And we all headed out the driveway here, went down to Route 53, hit the circle. And at the circle heading north, we gunned it. No, I'm not recommending this. But we just decided to see who could go fastest through Palmyra. And now you know how the state trooper car is usually right there waiting to catch us dutifully. And we're thankful for it. And so there we are gunning, but he pulls out at some point in the parade of 60 mile an hours and he pulls you over and you go, you know, everybody else is doing 60 past you and you got pulled over. So the trooper steps up to your car and says, you know, driver's license, registration, all that stuff. You know the drill, right? And you're like, officer, what are you doing? Like all these people are speeding. They're all getting away with it. And is it right that you give me a ticket? What were you speeding? Yes. Well, you tell me, is it right that you get a ticket? Yeah, it's right that you get a ticket. But the officer chooses to have mercy. Now, let's ask this question. How many of you have ever been pulled over for a traffic violation? Be honest. I was cowering like a baby at the stop sign one day a number of years ago. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I was repenting and all that. How many of you have gotten pulled over for a traffic violation? How many of you have received mercy? Well, look at that. The officer just said, you know what? Be careful next time. But how many of you have gotten a ticket before? All right, I'm paying attention. Okay, you're writing this down. So sometimes we get mercy and sometimes we get a ticket. We deserve the ticket. What's your response when you get mercy? Oh man, that was great. Mercy leads to worship. Thank you, officer. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. Until the feeling wears off. You see, the Jews hated the Gentiles. The Jews thought the Gentiles only existed to fuel the fires of hell. And they thought for a Gentile to get saved, to be accepted by God, they'd first have to become a Jew, and then they could approach God. And the radical thing about Romans 9, and what Paul is dealing with, is that God wants to have mercy on Gentiles, and the Jews don't like that. They're happy if God has mercy on them, and he's showing them, look, you only exist because God's had mercy on you. Why would you be upset if God chooses to have mercy on the Gentiles? That's the sovereignty of God that's been misunderstood. The sovereignty of God is that sometimes God chooses to have mercy on people. We want to have judgment. You ever had that happen? You ever feel that way? I want mercy for me, but God, I don't think they deserve it. But God is sovereign. It means he's got absolute power. And if he wants to have mercy, doesn't he have the right to do that? Let's follow on. So then it is not of him who wills, or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So it's not about how hard you work, not about the things that you're doing. It's about God who's merciful. 
Mercy requires that you needed it, that you had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way for you to be saved was not by working harder or running faster or trying more. The only way, your only hope, whether you're Jew or Gentile, is for God's mercy in your life. You needed the mercy of God. You needed God to look on your sorry situation and say, I want to help that one. That's what you needed. And he says, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, who was the ruler of Egypt when the Israelites were in oppression there, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. So hang with me a little bit longer here, gang. Pharaoh gives us an opposite example because Pharaoh also received God's mercy, didn't he? Oh, think about that. Remember the Israelites cried out to God and they said, God, we're in awful oppression here. It's been 400 years. We need help. God raises up Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, get out of here, Moses. I ain't letting nobody go. Who do you think you are? I don't care about you. I don't care about your God. And God says, okay, Pharaoh, let's dance. And plagues start to come. The first plague comes. And after the first plague, Pharaoh says, oh, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. And Moses does his thing. God gets rid of the plague. And then he comes back and says, let my people go. And what happens to Pharaoh? He hardens his heart. says, no, I decided not to. Then another plague. Oh, if you get rid of this plague, then I'll let your people go. Okay, the plague goes. And then what happens to Pharaoh? Hardens his heart. Decides not to do it. He's received mercy, received relief. But then as soon as relief came, he hardened up again, refused to believe God, refused to do what he was supposed to do. And what happened, and listen, the Jews were in danger. This is a warning to the Jews. They were in danger of hardening their hearts against God's will to show mercy to the Gentiles. And he's warning them, if you're not careful, what happened to Pharaoh will happen to you. Your hearts, the more you reject God's plan, the more you reject God's mercy, the harder your heart gets. And so God said, I'm going to set my people free. And Pharaoh said, no, you're not. And Pharaoh hardened. And then God would harden Pharaoh's heart. To harden just means to make stiff, to make stiff. It's like jello, you know, you put it in its liquid and then you let it set and it becomes harder. It stiffens up, it sets. So Pharaoh got exactly what Pharaoh wanted. God didn't change Pharaoh's heart. He just stiffened it. So we're learning about God's sovereignty. So the next question is verse 19. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? I mean, if God is pulling the strings, then it's got to be God's fault. And he says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So what he's showing you in human terms, you understand sovereignty. You understand absolute power. If you're a potter, if you're an artisan, a craftsman, you get a big lump of clay, you cut it in half. You got in mind a plan, right? And in your plan, you say, ah, I need to make a vase. So you set about on a wheel to make one into a vase. But also according to your plan, you want to make a spittoon or a dog bowl. So you make one vessel for honor to hold flowers for your wife. But the other vessel you make for dishonor to hold food for my dog. But the point is, doesn't the potter have that right to decide what he's going to do with the clay? 
I mean, who is the clay? What does the clay possibly know about the potter's plans? You see, we look at God's plans and we go, God, what are you doing? And that's why he says, who are we to say to God, what's this all about? I mean, how can we possibly, with our finite brains and our minuscule understanding, ever approach knowing what God is doing? As if I could have a master's of divinity. Like I've mastered divinity. That's crazy. I don't know what God is doing. We enjoy personal sovereignty, don't we? How many of you have ladybugs in your house? You get them with a vacuum, brush them out the window, smush them. Have you smushed a ladybug? They're so cute. How did you smush a ladybug? Okay, how many of you are ladybug squishers? How many of you are ladybug shushers? You shush them out. Okay, so what you've just experienced is sovereignty. One group has expressed sovereignty to bring judgment, and another group has expressed mercy. That's what you've done. You've made a decision. You've made a moral decision. How about spiders? How many of you squash spiders? All right. How many of you pick them up on a piece of paper and put them outside? Right. So you understand sovereignty, absolute authority in those realms. And he said, if you understand it, and you guys get after each other about it too, we're experts in knowing what everybody else should do with their lives. Oh, I know what they should do. I know what they should do. Everybody's got authority in their own realm, and that includes God. And that's why he says, who are you? to question, who are the Jews to question if God wants to bring mercy to the Gentiles? Remember Jonah? Jonah didn't want the Assyrians to get saved. They were wicked people. And God said, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? I mean, if I want to save people, why is that wrong? Look, church, let me share from my heart for just a second. If we're going to be a church, I mean, if we're going to really do what God wants us to do, that means we're going to invite in here some wicked people just like you. Right? I mean, you know, we know what we used to be, and we know what we still are in our quiet time, in our private time. And you recognize we're going to open our doors to disciple and to love and to expose wicked people to the Word of God, because that's what they need. They need to see God is merciful. You know, the world might ostracize you, but God accepts you. God wants you. He loves you. He desires that none should perish, not one. But when you do that, You're going to open yourself up to criticism because there's some people out there, ex-husbands, ex-wives, people that have been hurt, that are going to be astounded that we would offer that person mercy. Be ready for it when we're really doing the work of God. We're not a harboring house for sin. We're a hospital for sinners. And that's why we finish it up, verse 22. What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known. What if he did? What if he wanted to show his wrath? What if he wanted to make his power known? But instead, he endured with patience, with long suffering, the vessels of wrath, which had prepared themselves, is literally what it is, had prepared themselves for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. You see, that's where Paul's been going. What if God, instead of showing his power and his wrath, he instead decides to be merciful? Can God do that? Aren't we glad for it? Who does he show that mercy on? All those that are called. All those that he's called to receive his mercy. Well, has he called me? Well, at the end of service, if you come up and get saved, guess what? Then he's called you. And not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well.
God shows mercy on people that didn't deserve it. Isn't that the point? Isn't that what mercy is? Can we be merciful, church? Can we extend God's love and kindness to people that don't deserve it? Can we tell people about a God who loves them and doesn't want to see them perish?